0: Welcome to Leading Lights. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. Hello there. We are moving towards Easter, and I want to talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And the topic or the title of my talk today is Jerusalem and you, or just Jerusalem. You know, there's the city Jerusalem. It means foundation of peace. Salem is like the word shalom, and that's where it comes from. And so it's, it's a city of peace, Jerusalem. It wasn't always a great big city. It became the city of David after he was king. He started using it more and more. Before that, several important things happened in the Bible. Uh, if you trace the history of that place all the way through, you'll see that's where Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. And and there were various other things that happened in that place. It's an important place, but it became the center of what God was doing. And it became synonymous with God's people. Later on in the Bible, it becomes synonymous with heaven, with the church, with us. There are so many allegories and similarities between Jerusalem and us as God's people throughout the Bible. And we're looking at the start of Easter, on the Sunday, at the start of the week. It's called Palm Sunday in church tradition. Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. He's going to be crucified on the Friday, and on the Sunday he comes in, and it's called the triumphal entry. And the purpose, or the idea behind my talk today, is that Jesus wants to come into your life with peace, with triumph, with His presence, with His Lordship. And the lessons we learn from how Jerusalem dealt with Jesus coming in will make the difference between you being one of the multitude who knew about Jesus and encountered Him and heard about Him and maybe even said hallelujah about Him. But they were not the ones in the other group, which are the 120 who were worshipping Jesus afterwards. In the upper room after he died and risen again, there were only 120. And the difference is the way we receive Christ, just as Jerusalem received him. So the story starts in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, talking about him getting a colt or a a young donkey to ride on. And we may come back to that in a moment, but I'm going to start from verse 35. It says, then they brought him to Jesus. That's this young donkey. You know, there are verses in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus coming on a donkey, and this was what was fulfilled here, but there are also verses of him coming riding triumphantly on a horse, and the Jews in the Old Testament conflated those two, and that's why they missed Jesus, because he came so humbly the first time. He's going to come on a horse the second time. Revelation speaks of him being a rider on a white horse, faithful and true and he comes to install his government at Jerusalem for a thousand years. And Jerusalem, there's this huge earthquake, and the the whole topography of the earth has changed, and Jerusalem rises up to be the highest point on the whole planet, and a whole lot of islands disappear. It's a big event when Jesus comes the second time. But um, here we see that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. So it says, Then they brought him, the donkey, to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. So this is the disciples. It starts with a little group. You know, whenever Jesus enters into your life, there's a little group of people who you join or who tell you about Jesus. When I was 17, I was in a boarding school uh, in a a very remote part of Africa. It was a a very small town far away from anywhere else, and there was a tiny Christian group there of maybe eight or ten young men who worshipped Jesus, and they would meet at several times during the week, and they invited me to come, and they were that little group that brought jesus to me the the donkey and the small group of disciples who put their clothes over the donkey they had prepared something and jesus came riding into my life because of them and that's important for two reasons number one we need other people to help us find jesus but number two if you are the person who is introducing someone to jesus it's not all about you my friend it's about him we are just the little group or perhaps the little donkey And Jesus is the one that everybody is excited about. So, uh, in verse 36, it says, As he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And we're told from John that they also spread palm branches on the road. So now the crowds are starting to gather and there's an excited throng. He's riding down towards Jerusalem. Uh, He can see, he has a, a view of Jerusalem glistening and shining, beautiful in the sunlight. The temple is the main thing in the middle of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, the temple was where God's presence dwelt. That's where God was. If you wanted to find God, you had to go to Jerusalem and you had to go specifically to the temple. And then there were three parts of the temple. The outer courts, where anybody could go, Jews or Gentiles, then the holy place, and that was for priests only and then the holy of holies was the the high priest once a year could go in there and it was an awesome place where god's presence dwelt but when jesus died on the cross that curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest was torn into and it was like god's presence was let free into the whole earth and then jesus said go into all the world and make disciples of all nations so we see this, this idea of Jerusalem being the center and Jesus is coming in and there's this throng of people excited because it's Passover week, the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar and everybody's gathered there from all over the country. They all have to choose a lamb that they're going to sacrifice. So they choose the lamb on, at the beginning of the week and he gets sacrificed at the end of the week. And so there were hundreds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people and lambs, lots of little lambs. And they all had to be spotless without blemish. And they're all being carried into Jerusalem. And the crowds are there. And Jesus comes riding humbly on a donkey, not on a horse. And people start to just throng around him. Many spread their clothes and palm branches on the road. Uh, And as then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. You know, Jesus comes with blessing, with healing, with forgiveness, with provision, with kindness, with truth and righteousness and grace. And they were just rejoicing. They were just rejoicing. I wonder if you have experienced this. I may be speaking to someone today and this Jesus idea is you're not really fully sure. You're perhaps one of this crowd and you've seen a small group of people and maybe a little donkey. Uh, Somehow somebody's introducing you to Jesus and you're getting caught up and you've heard how wonderful Jesus is and you're getting excited. That's what this crowd was. And it was great. It was beautiful. Verse 38, they're saying, blessed is the king. comes in the name of the Lord. They start to spontaneously praise God and say things that are true. (laughs) The next thing they say is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The reason I know this was inspired by God is they were saying very deep theological truths but they were not very deep theological people. They were just the crowd who were there gathering for the Passover feast. They were caught up in the mood, but they started to say things that they wouldn't have known without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When they say peace in heaven and glory in the highest, that's a deep theological concept about uh, Hebrews and Revelation 12 speak about how Jesus cleanses the heavens and the devil used to be able to go in there and accuse the brethren. But at times, he at various times in history, he kicks him out of heaven at different levels. And, and when he died on the cross, he removed his power from heaven to, to rule the earth. And the heavens were cleansed as well as the earth. And so peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They were saying deep truths, but they were just in the moment. I wonder if you've ever been caught up in, in a worship experience and you start to feel God's presence. And you start to get excited and you start to say things and and do things that are different to normal. And you feel, wow, God is here. Some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. (laughs) There is something about God's presence that invokes praise. And even from inanimate objects, If the people had had shut their mouths and said, I'm not going to praise him, the stones would have started shouting. You know, it's so amazing that God's presence, the, the correct response is praise and thanksgiving and adoration and excitement. But that doesn't mean just because you felt that and just because you've been part of it and just because you've been excited in worship doesn't mean you are one of God's close children, his people, because most of this crowd did not follow Jesus. They weren't in the small group of 120 at the end of Jesus' time when he went, just before he went up to heaven. They weren't there. They were excited, but they weren't really committed. You know, this this response of praise, let me just say two things about praise. Number one, the Bible tells us that praise is the thing that brings God into our lives, but also brings us into God's presence. Praise is this amazing thing. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. There's this idea that if I thank him, and that just means saying, thank you, God, for who you are. It says they were praising him for the works they had seen and for who he is, just he's the, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying truths about him and they were just praising him. He comes into our presence and we enter into his. God inhabits the praises of his people, we're told in the Bible. And so praise is this amazing thing that enables us to experience God and brings God into our presence. But it doesn't make us a Christian just because you can praise God in in the excitement of worship. It's a start and it brings Jesus in. The second thing is that God can and does command nature and inanimate objects to praise Him. It says here He, he would tell the rocks to praise Him. There's other times where it says the trees of the field will clap their hands. Uh, there's many times in the Bible that it speaks of creation being told to respond to God and it responds in praise Uh, and God just tells it what to do and it does it. But humans have to choose to praise him. And there's an amazing passage in Romans chapter one, where it speaks about creation showing the glory of God. It says that everyone has seen in creation, how great God is. Even if the stones aren't crying out in praise, just creation itself tells us there is a creator. He is lovely. He is good. He is kind. And he brings life. But it says that men subjected that they, they push down that desire or that natural response of thanksgiving. Let me just read it to you. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Men are without excuse. His, his creation shows us. And the natural response is to praise Him. But then it goes on to say, But although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. So they suppressed that natural response of praise. They said, I'm not going to glorify Him as God. I'm not going to say He's great. I'm not going to be thankful which is another part of praise, just saying, thank you, God, for all you've done, that we can suppress it. But look what happens when we do. Uh, They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Something changes in our thinking. Our thoughts become futile. We can't think clearly and our foolish hearts are darkened. We can't see clearly. When I uh, do not respond, when I choose not to have the natural Praise and thanksgiving response. When I subject it, I say, "I'm, I'm not going to praise God today. I'm not going to let loose and tell him how great he is. I'm not going to get caught up in this, in this environment." When I do that, it says my mind is changed. I'm darkened and changed in my thoughts. And then it goes on to say that professing to be wise, they became fool, fools. Uh, they started worshiping other things instead of God. So money, idols sex, whatever it is, drugs. We start to worship ourselves, all all these different things. And then it says their thinking got even more corrupted, more changed. And they started doing all sorts of unnatural sinful acts, including sexual immorality, but also a whole lot of other uh, immoral things. Uh, It talks about um, all, all the different things that they got involved in and in verse 28 it says even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge god gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting and then it says the final result of that is they do these all these different unnatural sinful acts uh, but it starts with them not responding in glory and thanks to god and then it says and they even approve of those who practice them and that's part of the is when we approve of others sin We don't have to judge other people's sin. We don't need to force them to obey God, but we can't ever approve of sin. That's what this says. And it all starts with this thanksgiving. So that's the the praise. And then let's read on in verse 41 of Jesus coming in. Luke chapter 19, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus starts to cry. And that word weep is, is a strong word. It's sobbing. It's, it's gut-wrenching, crying. He's looking at Jerusalem and he is weeping for it. He says, you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't realize. You didn't see. You see, God can look from the big picture. It's a bit like an eagle soaring up high and he can see the whole big scenario and he can see where we're going and what's going to happen. God knows that if we go in our own way, And we don't follow his way. There may be pleasure for a time, but it ends in disaster. And Jesus was weeping for Jerusalem. He said, you didn't know the time of your visitation. You didn't know what was coming. Because just a few years after this, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was broken down and and ripped to pieces. And Jerusalem was completely ransacked. And it was because they did not respond to Christ. In Matthew 23 It says, Jesus said this, very similar. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And this is the next part. I have to now involve my will. So we've seen our emotions getting involved. (laughs) ecstatic praise and joy. When we respond to God, it's the right thing to do. And it's necessary. We must come into God's presence with thanksgiving and praise and get our emotions involved. But the next step is to get our will involved. Jesus said, I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. You know, God's will and man's will, when they're linked together, produce life. And God declares his will to us over and over again. I spoke about those little group of disciples and the little donkey bringing Jesus in. People will show you God's will and we praise him and we thank him for how good he is. But a time must come where I say, yes, God, I choose. I did a wedding recently uh, and it was a traditional African wedding and I loved it so much because as the, the bride and the groom came in, they were dancing, and people were singing and clapping and shouting and and making happy noises. And throughout the ceremony, there was singing and rejoicing and shouting and dancing. People were dancing all the way through the ceremony. And it was a wonderful event. And I still remember it. But you know whose life was changed by that wedding the most? My, My life was changed, not very much. But the bride and groom, their life is forever different. Before that, they were two separate individuals living in separate houses, going about their own lives in their own way. But after that, they were a unit, living together, sharing everything they had, and they were committed to each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until the end of their lives. Friends, that's where the will gets involved. The emotion of, woo, yes, we're having a wedding is wonderful. And if you haven't experienced that, you need to find that joy of praising God. But it must move into a decision. As we come down the aisle, we are rejoicing. But a point comes where somebody says, Will you decide to love and follow and honor and obey Jesus for the rest of your life? And you have to decide because there is a price to be paid. You know, a few days after this, Jesus was hung on a cross And only a very small group of people were around him at the cross. And they had put their own lives at risk because the Romans could have arrested them and crucified them as well. But it comes with a cost. If I'm going to follow Jesus, yes, what I gain is amazing and wonderful and enormous. But I need to be willing to give up my old life. And this is where it happens. Jesus said, you were not willing. Only 120. Out of that massive crowd, the way it got whittled down to 120, they're all praising, but only 120 are saying, I am with you, Jesus. I'm going to be in that upper room praying at the day of Pentecost, day and night praying in one accord, seeking God, worshipping Him. I'm with you, Lord. Whatever happens, even if you don't bless me, even if you don't do all the things I thought you should do for me, God, you are God. You are great. You deserve to be worshipped. I choose to give my life to you. I choose to bow my knee to you. I choose to subject my will to your will and say, you are Lord of my life. Now, he can force rocks to do that. But people have to choose. People have to choose. And then the last part, Luke 19. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. And Mark tells us, he said, for all the nations. My house is a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. So Jesus comes in now to the temple. And remember, the temple is the place where God's presence dwells. It's supposed to represent God. After this, Jesus becomes the temple. He actually said, uh, this house, I will, it will be destroyed and three days later it will be rebuilt. And he was speaking of himself as the temple. Then when he rose again, his spirit comes into individual people, Christians, and our bodies are the temple. And then when we as Christians gather and worship him, Ephesians 2 says, we are built together As a holy dwelling as a temple for his presence but the temple is very very important here and jesus comes in and he sees the temple and it's supposed to be a place of worship glorifying god representing god and a place of prayer for all the nations they're supposed to be praying they're supposed to be praying for all the nations of the world and all the nations are supposed to be allowed to go into that outer court of the gentiles and yet what's happened is a few business people have taken over that whole outer court. They've put out their tables. They are selling and buying goods. Yes, for religious purposes. It was for sacrifices and for religious ceremonies, but they were profiting and they were making money and they weren't thinking about God and they weren't thinking about prayer and they weren't thinking about all the nations and they weren't allowing all the nations to come into the temple because they'd used up all that space. And as a result, Jesus comes in and we're told he makes a whip and he clears them out and he gets very angry and he turns over their tables. And he says, uh, the Bible says, zeal for his house consumed him. And he said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Friends, the last part of this is when Jesus comes into your life. Yes, the first part is praise. Praise. excitement. And then there's a decision. Yes, Lord, I want to receive you as my king. But the third part is he clears the temple. And if Jesus hasn't, in a holy, lovely way, turned over some tables in your life, there is a good chance that you are not one of his close followers, the 120 who remained with him. Because when Jesus comes in, he wants to clean house. He doesn't come in as a, a timid, passive house guest who's happy to sit in the corner of the room and and just be led out of the cupboard every time we have an emergency. No, no. He comes and he says, I, I want to be in charge. I want to sort things out. What's that you're doing with your money? What's that you're doing with your time? What's that affection you have for that sin or that, that thing that's not honoring to me? What's that habit you have of speaking badly to your wife or your husband or your children? What's that desire you have to to be famous or or popular? What's going on? And he starts turning over tables and he says, my house is a place of my presence and a place of prayer for all nations. Two applications. Number one, in your own life, you've got to allow Jesus to come in and you've got to read his word every day. And you've got to say, lovely Lord Jesus, I praise you and thank you. I enter his gates with thanksgiving and his presence fills him. Then I've got to say, Lord, I choose to serve you. And then I've got to say, Lord, what is there in my life, in my actions, or in my thinking that is not right and not honoring to you? Please, Lord, turn over the tables. Because you know what the good news is? When he turns over those tables, he replaces them. Psalm 23 says, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He gives more than that fake little table, that little money-making thing. But then secondly, in our churches, we need to say, God, you are Lord. It's not about what I want. It's not about what a personal preference is what type of songs I want to sing, what I I can get out of it. No, no, that's a marketplace mentality where I'm treating church like a shop. I want to get something out of it. No, no. He says, let me turn over the tables and let your church be a place for all nations where anyone can come in, where they will encounter God. And it's a place of prayer for all the nations. Lord Jesus, help us Come into my life, Lord, just as you came into Jerusalem. Help me to praise you. Help me to choose for you. Help me to be changed and cleaned up by you. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to be one of that little group or perhaps a little donkey that takes you into other people's lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.